right. Good morning, Transit Church. How's everyone doing today? Good, good. Everyone got their uh, Christmas shopping done? No, no. I'll be quick. Don't worry. So you can get out of here and go straight to the mall. Um, all right. Well, hey, this morning we're going to be in Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. If you have your Bibles, feel free to turn there. If, if you don't have a Bible, we got Bibles for you in the center aisle, and the verses uh, will be on the screen as well. And this Advent season, we're going through a sermon series entitled The Anticipated Arrival of Jesus. And one of the themes with this uh, sermon series is, is what we're looking at. It's kind of the two sides of the Christmas story. And so last week, what Jeff talked about, if you were here, he talked about um, how the story of God's people is, is Jesus Christ moving them from slavery to freedom and new life in him. And what we're going to be looking at today, the title of my talk is, is uh, how Jesus Christ, this Christmas story, is about a people, the people of God being moved from a people who uh, were in despair to, have, to a people who have been delivered by Jesus Christ. Those are kind of the two uh, sides or the aspects of the Christmas story that we're looking at this sermon series. And this is what John Piper has to say about Christmas. He says, Christmas is an indictment before it becomes a delight. It will not have its intended effect until we feel desperately the need for a Savior. And so for some of us, uh, the, the truth of the matter is that Christmas is, is gumdrops and lollipops. We, we love Christmas. Michael Buble has been, been playing since October, right? His, his Christmas hits slash his only hits. Um, <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, sorry. Um, uh, for some of you, you got a tree, like you didn't celebrate Thanksgiving, you went and got a Christmas tree on Thanksgiving, set that up, and you know, your, your, your gifts are wrapped, you just love the Christmas season, it's been a good year for you, you actually look forward to that, but the, the truth of the matter is, for some of us, uh, for some of us, the holidays are tough, Christmas season can actually compound, compound what we're feeling uh, during this time of year. It might be the dysfunction. Maybe we just grew up in kind of a dysfunctional family, and Christmas, the holidays, force us to kind of re-engage in that dysfunction, which can be tough. For some of us, this has been a difficult financial year or maybe a difficult year in, in regards to I mean, personal struggles or, or depression or something like that, or, or maybe around the holidays, if you're here and you're single, you get the Christmas cards with the family and the kids, and you're just reminded of the fact that, hey, like the longing of your heart is to have a family, to have a spouse, and that's, that isn't your story yet, or maybe it's infertility. And around Christmas, it's, uh, you know, for to us, a child is born, and you're crying out to God saying, hey, this has been my prayer for months, if not years. And so for some of us here, uh, uh, the holidays, Christmas, this season has been, been a period of despair and depression, been kind of a dark season in our lives. And, and why is that? Why do we still struggle with that? And the reason why is because we still live in a dark, fallen world. And we know that uh, things are not the way they ought, ought to be. And my hope this morning is, is that we, the people of God, would be reminded that no matter what we are facing today, if any of the things I talked about kind of hit home with you, what we're facing today, that our stories don't end there. Our stories don't end in despair. Why is that? Because of the promise we have in Luke 2, 10 through 11, with the angel appearing to the shepherd said this, fear not. Do not be in despair. Do not fear. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Why do we not despair? Because 2,000 years ago in the city of David, a deliverer was born, sent to rescue us from despair and reconcile us to God. This is our hope. Our only true and lasting hope can be found in this deliverer. And so my desire this morning as we journey through Isaiah 9 is that we would have uh, eyes to see how truly valuable and worthy this Jesus, this deliverer is. 
and that we leave here resting in who he is, what he's done, and what he has promised to do in our lives because this is the hope of the Christmas story. This is what stirs our hearts and our affections this Christmas season, this story who, this story of Jesus, a deliverer who came to rescue those who are in despair. So with that said, let's pray and we'll jump into Isaiah 9. Heavenly Father, thank you, uh, Lord, for this season, Lord. Just a reminder of, 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 of your son descending from his throne, uh, taking on flesh, uh, walking our streets, uh, being tempted and tried just like we were, suffering everywhere, but yet living the perfect life on our behalf and paying the price that we deserved, all as a gift that could be given unto uh, sinners who were without hope until this deliverer came. So thank you, God, for the beautiful gift of Christmas. But the story didn't end on the cross in despair. The story ended with our resurrected king at sitting, seated at the right hand of the Father. So thank you, God, for that good news. May that, more than anything else this Christmas season, may that give us hope. May that stir our affections. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray you'd come in power. We thank you for your presence. We pray you'd move and enlighten our, our hearts in our eyes that are often uh, dark and blind and cannot see uh, uh, you for how truly valuable you are. So I pray that, um, uh, Father, you'd, you'd magnify and glorify your son, that he would increase and I would decrease. And pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, Isaiah 9-1, let's dive in here. Verses will be on the screen. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. And in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And so this verse starts out with that key word, but there. That's a kind of transitional statement, a conjunction. And so what's important whenever you see one of those is you've got to hit the rewind button. You've got to go back. And so what's happening in chapter 8 leading up here is that the prophet Isaiah is prophesying about the coming Assyrian invasion of Israel. That's what all of chapter 8 was about. And one of the first places to be hit around 733 BC was going to be the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Those were two of the tribes that made up the northern kingdom, uh, and one of those was kind of towards the west of the Sea of Galilee and one's to the south. So when you hear that uh, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, you're thinking Galilee. That's what you're thinking. And what we know, what history has shown us, is that this area was literally the front door of the kingdom of God for invading armies. This is where they had to go first. It was always the first and then the last place to get hit when people would come in and come out. So this was a, a, a kind of a, a dark place to live ahead. I mean, it was difficult. It was difficult. And so what Isaiah is foretelling is that this was coming, that an invasion was coming. The Assyrian Empire was coming to ransack Israel. It was going to be a dark time of despair for the people of God. And this was a result of Israel's uh, idolatry, apostasy, and alliances to wicked pagan nations. And what we learned there is that sin has consequences. Sin has devastating consequences. And what sin wants for your life and for mine, what the enemy wants for your life and, and mine, is, is despair. That's what sin always brings about always brings about. Look at verse 822. This is the verse leading up to where we are at in our text today. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. An invading army was coming, and it was going to be a dark time, a dark time for the people of God. Um, and so we've been talking about, we're going to take a quick commercial break here, define some terms. We've been talking about despair uh, for the last five minutes since I've begun my sermon. And what despair is, is hopelessness. 
It's hopelessness. It's a destitution. It's a lack of hope or expectation. You cannot really define despair without using hope in the definition because it's a lack of something. And what hope is, is a feeling of expectation or, or, or desire for a certain thing to happen. And this is how Hebrews 11.1 1 discusses the interplay between faith and hope. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And so what we, what we see there is that hope is this expectation about a future event happening. Like, this is going to happen. I, I, I feel it. I'm not necessarily maybe convinced. Where faith interacts with hope is that faith takes hope and says, not only am I hoping and I'm, I'm expecting this to happen, I know that this is going to happen. That's what faith is. That's how faith and, and hope interact. And that is the, the Christian life, right? Is this is, I have, I have hope. I read God's word, and faith comes in with the hope. You know, you're reading God's word, and, and you're, you're, you're reading about Jesus coming. He came, and now he's coming again. It stirs your, your soul where faith comes and says, I, I know my God. I know he's going to keep his word. You can take that to the bank. And um, what this looks like, the interplay between faith and hope is uh, this Christmas. I don't know if you all still get Christmas presents. You know, a lot of you guys have kids. Uh, you just get, you know, gifts for your, your kids and um, hopefully don't neglect your spouse in the process. But anyway, so this, uh, this Christmas, um, I am, uh, we do a secret Santa with my immediate family, and we send our Amazon wish list to, you know, our, uh, um, you do that too, I'm assuming. I think everyone shops on Amazon. Um, yes, absolutely. So uh, I sent my Christmas list to my family member who's, you know, who's going to get me what I, uh, I requested. And... Uh, <laughs> There's no doubt there, okay? So, um, and so, literally for the past couple of weeks since I sent that list, when, when, when day's kind of tough and, and, and all this stuff, I'll actually pop back up the Christmas list here at last there. And what I'm getting, this will, this will, this will yeah, this will be interesting, but what, what I'm getting for Christmas is I'm getting a, a, a Yeti mug, okay? It's a blue mug, it's got a handle, Yeti, Yeti mug, yeah, exactly. And uh, I am so excited about that transit church. You have no idea. Because I'm getting two books and this Yeti mug. And when life gets up, I'll go back and I'll look forward to this. And I'll be like, I'm going to, uh, there's coming a day in my future, soon, very soon, where, where coffee will not get cold. Right? Amen. And I'm going to read, I'm going to read this book. I'm going to read this book. Uh, on my kitchen table overlooking my front yard, I'm going to be sipping that, 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 that Yeti. It's got a handle. It's got a handle. I mean, and, and I look, and I just, and I look forward to that day. So there's hope, there's expectation, and there's also faith where I know that Amazon keeps its word, baby. <laughs> but that is, that, that is, that's coming. And on Tuesday, that's, that's going to that's gonna happen. And in the same way, that's the Christian walk, right? It's hope. It's like we, we're, we don't, you know, First Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul talks about, we don't mourn like people who don't have hope. We have hope. This beautiful gift of hope. That's one of the, the beautiful things about being a Christian is that, is that we're the most hopeful people around, baby, because that's what Jesus Christ came to, to, to give us. And so the opposite, the opposite of that mindset, of the interplay between faith and hope changing our present perspective, right? It's the McDonald's arch that is the Christian life where, you know, this is the present. And so you, you do the arch, you look back to what has God done? What has Jesus done? He came, he died, I'm justified and declared righteous. Okay, that's the past. And then you look forward to the future and what is coming. This is what's coming. And that changes your present state of mind. No matter what you're facing, that hope changes your present state of mind. I saw it from my seminary professor, the, the McDonald's arch. You look back and you look forward. 
And the opposite of that mindset is despair. And what despair is, is a complete lack of both faith and hope, where you're basically the mindset, when you're in a season of despair, your thought process goes like this. The darkness, whatever I'm facing right now, the darkness gets the final say. It wins. There is no deliverer coming. Either he doesn't exist, or he's some deistic God who, who clearly is not uh, on the throne of the universe or on the throne of my life, because if he did, he would come and, and rescue me from this. He's, there is no deliverer coming, and, and, and this is the hopeless reality of my life and my existence, right? That's what despair looks like. That's what despair looks like. And in contrast to that, biblical scholar Alec Miltier, he says this, uh, talking about this interplay between hope and despair. He says, we have to decide what reading of our experiences we're going to live by. You guys realize that we read, we interpret our experiences, our circumstances? The darkness and distress are real, but they are neither the only reality nor the fundamental reality. In any given situation, we can either sink into despair or rise into hope. What he's saying here is uh, the, the Christian has an opportunity, has, has essentially two options when faced with, with any situation. We can sink into despair we can take that giant leap of faith and rise to hope and faith in Christ. And I think the most beautiful example of this is the Apostle Paul. Um, he says uh, this in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 10, and verses 16 through 18. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Watch this. We are afflicted in every way. So what the Apostle Paul does here is he doesn't neglect that life is awful sometimes. He doesn't neglect that life can be devastating sometimes, right? Watch this. Watch this. He, 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 he says this is reality for us, that we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed. This is confusing to us. We don't understand what you're doing here, Lord, but we're not driven to despair. Persecuted. We're not for How, how easy is it to be, to be persecuted and think that you're forsaken? He's saying we've been persecuted, but we're not forsaken. God hasn't gone anywhere. We're not doubting him. Struck down, not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. I love verse 16, skipping ahead. So we do not lose heart. Oh, I love that. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away. If you're here today, you're facing a health crisis, uh, this, this, is, this hits home for us, right? He calls it like it is. He's saying, yes, our outer body, this, this, this body is, is wasting away. We're all in this room dying together. There's pain, the pain of, 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 of loss and injury and, 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 and dysfunction, right? Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The apostle Paul, you know this, was caught up in like to the third realm of heaven. He says that. He talks, but he, he talks about it like a third person. He says, I know a guy who did that. And so the apostle Paul is saying, listen, listen, whatever you're facing in this season compared to, uh, compared to the glory that is waiting for us, that is beyond all comparison, whatever we're facing is, is but a pinch, a pinprick. It might seem devastating. It might seem awful now. It might, be, it might seem the fundamental reality of your life. It's not compared to the glory that awaits us for all of eternity. He's saying, keep that perspective in mind. He says, as we look, as we look, where are we fixing our eyes? Not to things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are unseen are transient, but the things that are seen are eternal. And so, if you're here today and you're in a season of, 
of despair or desperation, my, my encouragement, my exhortation to you would be, where's your focus? Where are we looking? Are we looking to our circumstances to define our reality? Do we believe that that is the fundamental reality of our lives? Or are we going to believe what God says about our fundamental reality? See, the fundamental reality of your life is not that issue you and I are facing in this season. It is the fact that you are a child of the living God. That's your fundamental reality, no matter what's facing you. Your child of the living God who has redeemed you by his blood is presently at work in your circumstances. He's sovereign over that. He's, he's, he's sitting above that, and he's using that situation that we might be facing today for his glory and for our good. And there's coming a day in our future where, where that pain will be no more. That is the fundamental reality of our life. The New City Catechism says, uh, says this. Ask a question and answer. That's how catechisms work. I love this. He says, what is our only hope in life and death? What is the only thing that we can really put our hope and our faith in because everything else is sinking sand? Everything else is a shaky foundation. What's our only hope? Our only hope is this, is that we are not our own, but belong, body and soul, in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's our hope. That's our hope. That's what we put our trust in. And so returning to our text, the people of God were facing uh, intense darkness and distress and despair. And if we look back at Isaiah 9, their, their story doesn't end there, right? In that darkness, a, a light breaks in, and this is what it says there's a promise made. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nation. So there's a promise there. There's a day coming in the latter times when the people in anguish won't be in anguish anymore. Because, listen, something glorious was going to go down in, in Galilee. That's what, that's what he's saying. He's saying something's going down in this region that was war-torn and ransacked. Something's going down. Light's going to break into the darkness. Something glorious is going to happen. Now, we just went through a sermon series in the Gospel of Mark, looked at the first half uh, uh, earlier this year, and we're going to start off the new year looking at the second half of the Gospel of Mark. But we know that one of the first areas that Jesus went when he began his public ministry, he was baptized, went to the wilderness, and where, where did he begin his, his, his ministry? In Galilee. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. Look at Matthew 4. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years prior to this. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. What was the glorious thing that was happening? A king was born. A deliverer was sent right to the region, like a laser-like focus that Isaiah foretold of. And what we're going to be looking at for the rest of our sermon is, is uh, what, was this, what was this anticipation, this hope that the people of God during Isaiah's time were to look forward to? How was this deliverer described? And what was his kingdom going to look like that he was going to usher in? Because in the middle of their despair, they were given that beautiful gift of hope. And the first thing we see in our passage today is that this coming king will cast out darkness. Look at verse 2. 
The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. What darkness kind of symbolizes in Scripture is kind of anything anti-God. It's, it's, it's anything that's evil, anything that's sinful, and the consequences that follow the despair, the destruction, the discord that follow from. That's what darkness looks like. And this now, because of the fall, uh, because of sin plaguing this planet, this is the reality for each and every one of us here, is that we live in a dark world. But the problem where we go wrong is often we think the darkness is out there. It's, it's with, uh, you know, in that country, over that ocean, or, or whatever, but it's not in, it's not in here. Well, what, what the Bible would say is darkness is, is in here that what we need is we have dark hearts. You read the Gospels, the Sermon on the Mount is all about how uh, morality isn't external, it's internal, where, where Jesus goes after, hey, you say you might not you know, murder anyone, but if you hate your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. You might, not, you might say, oh, I've never committed adultery, but if you're lusting, saying you're committing, you're adulterer in your heart. Jesus, Jesus you know, just laser-like focus goes, hey, look at your heart. Do a fearless moral inventory and see that well, your greatest need for a dark heart is for light to shine in there and cast out the darkness. And this is what John 8, 12 says, and Jeff's going to preach about this tomorrow, so I'm not going to camp out too long here. But Jesus said to them, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. What Jesus is saying there is that each and every person who's stepping foot and living and walking in a dark world and has darkness in their hearts needs me because I am and the light of the world. There is no other light to shine in your heart, to shine in this world. There is no other hope that you can have. I am it. I am the light of the world. He says, essentially, there's two kinds of people, those who are walking in darkness who don't know me, and those who are walking in light. Those who are walking in light. Those are your two options. And uh, for six and a half years, I lived in a dark, damp basement apartment with not a lot of light. It's like living in a submarine. If you wanted to see... uh, if you wanted to see you know, greenery and, and, and bushes, and you literally had to climb on the couch and peer out through like the little, you know, little basement windows okay, for six and a half years. So recently my wife and I moved, and our master bedroom uh, faces south, and there's this cool thing called the sun that we didn't know existed. And so the other day, literally, uh, it's mid-afternoon, and I'm, I'm, I'm taking a nap, and it was all dark, and I was like, dude, I don't live in the darkness anymore, baby. I'm going to fling, I'm going to flung those curtains open. All of a sudden, this flood of radiant light came and completely warmed the room. And I was like a cat. I found like, you know, where the window, the, the light breaks in. I had my feet right in there just radiating, giving me warmth. It was amazing, just basking, glowing. It was awesome. It was awesome. And that's what it looks like to put your faith and your trust in Jesus. It's saying, hey, I'm tired of living in the darkness. If I'm honest with myself, yeah, my heart is wicked. It's selfish. I'm tired of living like this in despair. And all you got to do is say, all right, light of the world, I'm flinging open the curtains of my soul, my heart. Would you come in and shine and cast out this darkness? That's what it looks like to put your trust in Christ. It's just opening up your hands, flinging the curtains open, and say, come in and just see what he begins to do with your heart and your life. Just see, just watch. He is the light of the world. He is our only hope for those who are walking in darkness. The second thing we see that Isaiah foretold of, is that this coming king will increase joy. Look at verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. They are glad when they divide the spoil. Do you guys see? It's easy for us to skip through this. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its what? Its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. They are glad when they divide 
the spoil. What, what the, the people of God would look forward to is that this coming king would increase uh, joy for the people who were once in anguish. recently read an awesome book called Happiness by Randy Alcorn, where he just takes one word, happiness, and, and all the biblical references to it in the Hebrew and in the Greek, and just completely unpacks it for like 400 pages. I highly encourage you to read that. It was game changer for me. Game changer for me. Because I think oftentimes in the church, we do not believe that God is after your joy. We believe that to be a Christian, you have to be dutiful and, and, and ridden uh, with, with guilt and shame for never measuring up to the standard. Not realize that God's after your joy, that the converted person, J.C. Ryle says, the converted man ought to be the happiest man. And this coming king, part of his mission was to increase our joy. And if you do not believe me, you're saying, whoa, 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 Nick, this is too much. I'm going to read you the words of this coming king in the upper room discourse. Three verses. We're going to go from from his high priestly prayer, one of the last prayers that Jesus prayed before he went to the cross, John 17. We're going to look at something he said in John 16, and then something he said in John 15. The upper room discourse, Jesus is sharing a meal with his disciples. It's the last meal, the last supper, and it's his brave heart speech to them saying, I'm about to uh, go to the cross three days, I'll I'll die, you know, rise again. And and here's the deal. Here's what I'm, I'm going to leave you with. And we have a record of his prayer in John 17, and this is what he says, John 17, 13. One of the last things Jesus prayed for, his, for the followers of Jesus. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. That they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. He's praying to God the Father. The disciples are, you know, are, are listening. They're hearing this. And one of the things that this coming king wants for his people is joy. It is joy. Not the jet, not the health, not the wealth, True and everlasting joy, the abundant life that Christ came to bring. John 16, 24, a chapter earlier. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Jesus is saying, hey, you haven't asked for anything. I don't know if you know how this relationship works. I'm telling you, I'm open for business. I have joy everlasting. Come bug me. You need joy. I got what you need. Come, come talk to me. I want your joy to be, do we see the heart of Jesus here for his disciples? That your joy would be full. Okay, it's only two verses. Okay, well, let's go to John 15, 11. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. That's three chapters in one book, church. We could spend, we could spend weeks just talking about the biblical uh, uh, attestation uh, witness to uh, God's pursuit of your joy in him for his glory. God is most glorified when we are most delighted in him. That's our chief end. And that's what the king came to do, to increase our joy. And so, um, uh, if you know me, you know that I'm a diehard Capitals fan. I grew up watching them lose time and time again and all this stuff. And uh, especially to the Pittsburgh Penguins. If you're here today, you're a Penguins fan. Um, uh, The Bible would commend me to love my enemies, so I'll pray for you. Um, But uh, here's the deal. This year, the, the Washington Capitals won the Lord Stanley Cup, okay, the Stanley Cup, okay, and, and mercy. I was downtown for, uh, downtown for the game when they won. They were playing in Vegas, but we were all down there watching on the Jumbotron, and um, when we were all, you know, everyone's, you know, rallying all this stuff, and when we were there watching uh, on the, you know, Jumbotron or whatever, we see the captain, Alexander Ovechkin, hoist the cup and declare victory over all of the Capitals' enemies and usher in a new, a new era, a new chapter for Caps fans, we, we, here's what we didn't do. Here's what all of D.C. didn't do that was down there. We didn't, yes, golf clap, yes. 
This is true. You have, you have declared victory. Yes, this is amazing. You know, we didn't, we didn't nod our heads. We lost our minds. I literally hopped on my buddy's back. We went running full sprint, and I was high-fiving everybody. So I'm not even exaggerating, okay? I, I, and I wasn't worried. I wasn't looking around. I was like, oh, I wonder if anyone sees me raising my hands. I, was, I, I lost my mind. It's a moment I've been waiting for. And, and, and that was because a couple guys from Czechoslovakia, Moscow, got a rubber puck in a net more than the other guys, right? But how much more do we, uh, the people of God, have to celebrate? How much more has God done on our behalf? How much more do we have to rejoice about, right? For what Christ has come to do in our lives and what he's promised to do in our lives, right? And so, so I think there's this problem is, is we swing the pendulum from the, the heart uh, to the head or to, from the emotions to the intellect. We go, oh, we don't want to be those, 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 those crazy charismatics. And so we flip it over here and then we're, okay, God's just after my head. I just need to download more theology, but my heart will not be stirred, right? I'm going to golf clap right? And some, some of you, that's how you're wired. That's great. And, and, and all this stuff. I'm coming off of, 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 you know, the heels of seminary where it was just, it was all intellect. And that's what seminaries are, are, are training you to do is to, to, to learn. It's, it's, a, it's, you know, you're studying. And, uh, but I think, I think the problem where we go wrong is, is we live in, you know, we, the, these two camps. We think we either have to uh, uh, be all emotion and no intellect or all intellect and no emotion. But God's after your heart. God's after your emotions, and so that's why, we, that's, why we, that's why we raise our hands. That's why we rock back and forth a little bit, right? When we're, when we're praising, we're worshiping, right? I, I, hey, the worship team killed it on that last one. That was amazing, dude. I look at my wife, I said, oh my goodness, this is amazing. You know, I wasn't worshiping them. I was trying to worship Jesus. But, um, <laughs> but this gospel, this good news, it's, it's, it's good news of great joy for all people, church. That's what Jesus came to do was to increase our joy in him, where joy can only be found. Not in a Yeti mug, in our King Jesus, being forgiven, being reconciled to God, experience the grace, love, provision, and fatherly care and affection of our Father forever. That's our hope. That's what this king came to do. And so these people are, uh, Isaiah is seeing this. And why are these people rejoicing? Why are they glad? Because this coming deliverer, the Messiah, would conquer that which they were powerless to overcome in and of themselves. In and of themselves. The coming king will conquer foes. Third thing we see. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior and the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. This coming king would usher in victory for the people of God, freedom and liberty from all their oppressors that they were powerless to overcome. You and I uh, have no shot against sin and death in our lives. No chance to overcome that. Jesus Christ's coming king conquered those foes for us so that the penalty of sin, its power, and, and one day its presence will no longer have any say in our lives. And there's a reference here to the day of Midian in this text. And that's a reference, if, if you know uh, uh, the book of Judges, that's a reference to this guy Gideon and, and the Israelites' defeat of the Midianites. And, and the Midianites around this time in Israel's history were just wreaking havoc on Israel. And God calls Gideon to lead his people in, in victory against their enemies, the Midianites. And two things stick out about this story is one about this story of Gideon and the defeat of the Midianites is that this victory was won through an insignificant agent. If you notice, I love, I love the narrative of Gideon. Go back and read Judges 6. It's amazing. But Judges 6.15 says this. This is Gideon speaking to the Lord after the Lord calls him. The Lord calls Gideon and he says, hey, you almighty man of valor, 
I want you to lead these people in victory. And this is what Gideon says. Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. You got the wrong guy. You got the wrong guy, Lord. And the Lord says, I, I don't make mistakes, Gideon. So that's number one, insignificant agent. And then two, what we see about this story is that this victory would be won in such a way that it could only be the work of God. It could only be the work of God. Look at 7.2. 7, the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many. He gathers all the troops, uh, 22,000. And the Lord says, you got too many people for me to give you the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my hand has saved me. Wow. And so uh, Gideon is, is encouraged by the Lord to, to whittle down the army to 300 men. It goes from 22,000 to 300 so that there'd be no mistake, be no mistake about who was their deliverer, who was their rescuer, who was their, their savior. And that's the way the kingdom of God operates. That's uh, the way that um, this king would reign with his people. That's how the economy of God works, is we just enter into the victory that he has already secured for us. Salvation is, is an open hand receiving a gift fully wrapped with a bow on top and your name on it. Saying, if you want it, just unwrap it. Everything's paid for. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, you guys know it. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift, a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. No one may boast. Everything in the kingdom of God has been earned for us by Jesus Christ. It's everything he accomplished to be gifted to his people. And just like any gift, it can be received or it can be rejected. The coming king will reign forever. I got to move on here, run out of time. Verses six through seven. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of the host will do this. I love how this starts out. For us, to us, to the people of God, a gift would be given, a child, a child, a, a savior, gifted to God's people. And this son was to grow up, this child was to grow up and to inaugurate and usher in a new kingdom where the, the government, the burden of that rule would no longer be on the people, it would rest on his shoulders. It rests on his shoulders. So the question uh, uh, that, that this uh, kind of stirs in us uh, that Isaiah is answering is, well, what would this deliverer be like? What would this king be like? Well, here's the deal. He'd be like, un unlike any king Israel had in the past. They got a long line of, 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 of wicked kings. And this king would be unlike all of them. He'd be a wonderful counselor. This king, uh, the Hebrew nuance for that word wonderful is kind of a, a heavenly, a supernatural wisdom or counsel that his wisdom, his guidance, his teaching would be breathtaking, it would be otherworldly in a sense. You read the Gospels and you see Jesus' description of the human heart and you see this fulfilled, that Jesus is a wonderful counselor. A mighty God, this king, uh, would reign in power, divine power, because he's a divine king. Mighty God, an everlasting father, this king would come and he would shepherd the people of God. Caring for the helpless, strengthening the weak, protecting and providing for the flock of God. Everlasting, eternal Father. And lastly, the Prince of Peace, that this divine king would usher in true and eternal peace between us and God. And so, quick side note here, you know, in our suffering, 
oftentimes uh, we, we tend to run to other areas, right? To, to alleviate or to cope with our suffering. And here's the deal. Oftentimes, maybe, just maybe, God, when, when we're weak, maybe that's right where uh, God wants us to be. Because when we're weak and we need some counsel, when we're weak and we need some strength, when we're weak and we need some, some peace, and when we're weak and we need some fatherly care and provision in our lives, listen, uh, Jesus Christ is, is saying, I, I can be all of that for you. If you just come to me. You need wisdom? Come to me. Don't go to Google. Come to me first, right? You need some care, some protection, some, some, some love, some wisdom, some peace in, your, in your, your restless heart. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden and burdened. Don't miss out on this Jesus in your despair. Run to him. He has promised all of these things for his people. That's what this king would be like. This is how he would reign. And the cause of such a, a figure like this, the cause of such a king like this, listen, cannot fail. If all this is true about how he is described, well, then the kingdom that he is ushering in, that cause is not going to fail. And the kingdom that this king would usher in is a kingdom that will, will never come to an end. It'll be a perfect kingdom where this king will reign with justice and righteousness and peace forever. It's the one place, listen, where things are finally the way they are supposed to be. No more pain, no more tears, no more death, no more sin, no more suffering. This king will reign eternally forever with justice and righteousness over the entire earth. What hope we're given, right? How often uh, do we get stirred up in this political climate where, surprise, surprise, earthly leaders fail us time and time again, and we all lose our minds, right? And I'm tempted with that too. You read the news, and you're just like, whoa, okay, mercy, you know, like across the world, right? Isn't that the story of history? Earthly kings letting people down, right? But what hope do we have, uh, we have as Christians that our king that we bow down to and we pledge allegiance to ultimately is Jesus Christ who's sitting on the throne, Right? And is going to usher in fully and finally one day the new heavens and the new earth that we are already citizens of. How awesome is that? What hope do we have in that? And the last part I'll be looking at, I'll wrap up with this, is in verse 7. You know, uh, around Christmas time, you read Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, and uh, you can kind of miss some things. But the beauty of, uh, of, of preaching is you really have to camp out on one text, and you see the depth there. And the last line here is this, is the zeal of the Lord of the host will do this. I love that last line. The zeal of the Lord of the host will do this. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, zeal symbolized a passionate commitment or love or devotion for someone, Right? often met with action, often met with violent action. Zeal, passionate commitment and devotion for someone that was, was manifested, that was shown through action, sometimes violent action. And so if you know uh, me uh, and my family, you know that we have a cabin a couple hours west of here in the Shenandoah Valley. And when I was in high school, we, uh, uh, we were on vacation there, me, uh, my immediate family, and uh, my, my brother-in-law. And it was, I think it was around March. Uh, it was definitely the spring because it just rained. And, and, and just west of our cabin, like in the sticks, like our cabin's in the sticks, and then in the, the sticks of the sticks, further out west, uh, are these, these mud trails, four-wheeling trails. They go for miles. You can literally go from like, you know, all the way up to West Virginia, all the way down to, to Harrisonburg on these, these are trails. It's just like a, a cobweb, a spider web of all these four-wheeling trails. So, so we were like, hey, brother-in-law's got a brand new Toyota Tacoma. Let's load the ATV, the dirt bike. Me, my, him, me, my two sisters, we're going to go. So we told our parents, we said, all right, this is around, I think, noon, 12 o'clock. We told our parents, hey, 8 p.m., 
if we're not back by 8 p.m., come looking for us because we're all dead, right? <laughs> that's, that's, that, was the, that was like, you know, this was before cell phones type of thing. And if, even if we had cell phones, they wouldn't work on the mountain. So we go and we uh, get to the top of the mountain, offload everything. I was on the dirt bike. Two sisters were on the ATV, and Jeremy was in his new Tacoma, and, and it just rained, and it was awesome, right? We were just, you know, tearing everything up, and I had to pay for the dirt bike. My, that was back when my dad would pay for everything, so, you know, just run that thing into the ground, right? And uh, where we're now, if I, you know, I would never take anything four-wheeling because I'd have to pay for that. Anyways, so, um, so we're having a blast, man, going through these huge mud puddles, and then I go through this one, and, and then all of a sudden, I look back, and there's no longer the truck behind me. I look back, and, and I, I go back, you know, do a little quick U-turn, and I realize that, dude, this thing is sitting in a massive mud puddle, and it's stuck. It's stuck in, like, a, the Sea of Galilee of mud, just, like, boom, like, right in the middle. And uh, we're like, okay, okay. It was, like, around 4 o'clock towards the end of our, our, uh, our little adventure there. And um, we started, we're like, okay, we can just, you know, push it. We tried, we tried a lot of different things, push this thing out. First, Jeremy did his thing. And then next it was like, okay, well, maybe, you know, maybe we can get on the, the bed of the truck and jump up and down while you floor it, right? And if you've ever done that, you know that it creates a tidal wave of mud for everyone in the bed of the truck. So now we're all covered in mud, more than we were before. And then next we tried to, you know, there was one area of, of, of hard ground, so we tried to, I mean, at this point we're getting desperate. Hours had gone by, and we tried to get the, we got the jack out, and we're like, okay, well, we'll put the jack in, in, underneath the bed, and we'll crank it up. But what that did was the truck didn't go anywhere; it just moved the jack into the dirt, into the into the mud. And we're like, okay, that, this is hopeless. Like this thing wasn't moving anywhere, right? And slowly we got from hope, okay, cool, this is a little hiccup, to like, okay, the hope meter is, is going down. And then uh, uh, um, uh, I believe Jeremy and Kristen went on the ATV to go down all the way down to town, see if anyone had like a chain or whatever to help us out. And then I was left with my sister, who's a couple of years older than me. And all of a sudden, you know, we're left alone. And, and I'm about, I was about as big um, then as I am now. So I was terrified of, you know, uh, <laughs> of, of being able to use my strength to fight anything off. And I heard one of the scariest sounds you could ever hear when you're abandoned in the wilderness. And that's the sound of rednecks on ATVs hooting and hollering, okay? <laughs> and, uh, and so all of a sudden, I hear, like, these guys, like, woo, 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 you know, all this stuff coming in. And... Um, and I'm like, okay, my, you know, my sister's older than me. She's, uh, you know, whatever. So I got a stick, and I was like, okay, I'll pretend it's a walking stick. You know, don't know what's going on. You know, you're, you're, you're high school. You're stupid. You know what's going on. Anyway, so these guys come in. Literally, I was like, okay, cool. Well, there's two ATVs. There's two of them, and at least they'll help us get out. You know, they have ATVs. Maybe they got a chain or whatever. I guess they were camping somewhere on the mountain. They literally parked their ATVs facing the truck in the mud and just talked to themselves about when they were stuck in the mud. Like, hey, remember, remember that time when, you know, Billie Jean got stuck and all this stuff? And I'm looking, I'm like hey, do you guys, you guys want to help at all, you know? And they're like, oh, no, we're good, you know? And, and, and I was like, okay, cool. Well, deliverer came, and they, they left and left us in, in there. So anyway, so long story short is um, uh, everyone's gathered back, and, 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 and we're just, it, it's getting dark. It's cold. It's spring, so night's coming. I think um, the journey to, to uh, find some cabins or, you know, whatever, I, I can't remember exactly the full details, but I remember basically it was this. It was super late. It was around 10 o'clock now. Um, as I fast forward through this, we're all cold and wet, and we're thinking, wow, we might have to like, sleep in the, you know, the truck before we can get this all figured out. Like, we don't know what's going on. We're in the middle of nowhere, literally stuck in the mud. And, uh, and all of a sudden, as, as those thoughts of despair and hopelessness are entering our minds, all of a sudden I hear this slow coming up the mountain. 
And back then, my dad had this like 1974, three-quarter ton Chevy, like orange pumpkin looking truck. Sounded like a Blackhawk chopper. It was, it, was, uh, it was awesome. And all of a sudden, I hear this faint noise. I'm like, hey, is that, is that, is that what I think it is? All of a sudden, I had, I had hope. And I was like, that might be, that just might be my deliverer, my, my father coming to rescue us. And then the noise got louder and louder, louder and louder. And all of a sudden, I was like, there is no uh, misunderstanding, misinterpreting what that noise is. That's the sound of that 1974 Chevy pickup with my father in it coming to, to rescue his kids in the mud. And all of a sudden, so, so that's off in the distance. We were still stuck in the mud, right? We were still cold and dreary and damp. But what changed? All of a sudden, our entire disposition changed. Everything changed in that moment. We were still stuck. We were still covered in mud. We were still in a, in a hopeless situation. But what did we know? We knew our Father was coming for us. Our deliverer was coming, and that changed our present circumstance. It changed it. It changed it. And so our father comes. Somehow he found us. Apparently he was looking. So all the way up this mountain, there's these switchbacks, and you can literally drive off the cliff. He's looking over the cliff, thinking that we might have, you know, ventured down there. And just by happenstance, he comes, you know, like miraculously, like finding a needle in a haystack, finds us. And uh, scoops all of his nasty, dirty kids out of the muck in the mire, leaves the brother-in-law to, uh, <laughs> with the truck to wait for, the, wait for the, uh, the tow truck to come and get him out there. But we all, we all covered in mud, uh, pile into you know, his pristine Chevy. And he doesn't just take us out of the muck in the mire, but he, he brings us back to where we belong, home, baby. So we can get cleaned up. That's what zeal of the Father looks like. And the hope of the Christmas story is the zeal of our heavenly Father not leading us in the muck and the mire and the darkness and despair. It's him sending his son, his one and only son, Jesus, a baby born in a manger, to come and deliver us from our despair, deliver us from death and darkness so that people who have walked in great darkness can see light. And his light can shine in their hearts and their lives can be changed forever. And this king, listen, zeal often, remember, was manifested through violent action. That this coming king would, would face that violent action on the cross, a cross that we deserve. Living the life we, we were supposed to live and paying the penalty that we deserve so that we would be spared that and we could be reconciled to God the Father. That's our hope. That's our hope, that we belong body and soul to our God and Jesus Christ. The zeal of the Father is the hope of the Christmas story. Zeal meaning passionate devotion and love and commitment for each and every one of you in this room. There was no greater price that could have been paid for your redemption, your deliverance, and mine. That's the hope of the Christmas story. That's our hope. And so with that said, let's, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God that you're a God who is zealous for us, that you're a God who pursues us, you're a God who descends and enters into our world, God, on our behalf, out of love for us. Thank you. Thank you for that, Lord. So, Spirit, would you come? Would you comfort those who are in despair? Father, help us to see the hope and the faith and the joy and the grace and the peace that you usher in, that this deliverer brings, Father. I pray that this Christmas season, no matter what we're facing, would be a, a season uh, uh, of, of true and lasting joy in you, Jesus. 
that no matter what we're facing, we wouldn't look there, but we know that the fundamental reality of our lives is that we are owned by you. We are children of God, and you are a good father, a mighty God, a wonderful counselor, our everlasting father, and our prince of peace. So we thank you, God, for that. And we pray we leave here rejoicing and resting in the work that you have already accomplished on our behalf and your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.